Curiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clickertry. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And every now and then, Dominique and I get together, just the two of us, we don't have a, a guest we just have an afternoon in which we share back and forth. And we were going to meet up last week, but my head got fuzzy and we didn't. I just said to Dominique that I was really glad that we actually didn't meet up last week because now I know what I want to talk about and what I want to talk about are hugs. And Dominique, you have a whole list too. So what are some of the things that you want to talk about? And then we'll jump in and decide where we start. Okay. Well... There's a little miracle that I want to share. Um, I love the sound of that. Yeah, with Canelta will take only a minute, but still, it's fun when they happen. Yes. And um, I know you have your science camp coming up, and you're going to be talking about airless learning. And I just stumbled on an article a few weeks ago that I thought was pretty interesting, and that might be like an appetizer for your science camp discussions about, uh, well, it's a research that was done uh, or led by the University of Arizona. And the title of the research is the 85% rule for optimal learning, which you thought was dead, right? But I mean, this this article was just published last November in uh, Nature Communication. So I think it's still interesting to talk about it. And then I wanted to talk about what I've been using actually to raise criteria rather than the 85% rule. And it's something that comes from the portal book from Mary Hunter's uh, book. The manual, yes. Yeah, the manual. And it's been helpful for me. It's it's something completely different, very simple. But it's it's a rule I've been following and um, I'd like to share it today. So that's my list. Well, well let's start with your list. Okay. I, because I, I like the sound of all of that, and, and I'm always curious. So, Well, let me start with my little miracle, because yes. that will take only yes. a minute. You know, we, we've talked so many times about giving animal choice when, there's, when we do husbandry procedures, and there's been such an evolution um, when I, can I used to really hate you know the medication we put so that the dogs don't get ticks. You have. To, I you don't have to, actually because okay, I so haven't like, had dogs. It's like a but... liquid that you have to put in three, four places. You know, like uh, near the neck, in the middle of the body, near the tail, etc. And so, in the years and years ago, I used to. I, I always did it not with a leash, you know. But I, in the very beginning, years and years ago, I used to kind of corner her. And she would tolerate the, the procedure. I don't know why. You know, sometimes I, I ask my vet, is, is it burning her? Why is she, you know, not liking it? But possibly it's just because when you don't have control, you just be, find a procedure aversive. Right. That right. might be the only reason. Anyway, so later on in our relationship, what I would do is not corner her. I would uh, just go to her, kneel next to her, 
wait a little bit and do the procedure. And she was fine with that, which was already kind of a little miracle because, you know, she wasn't, and she knows, I mean, when, when I start unwrapping this thing, she clearly knows what it is. But this, this time, this summer, she was in the backyard. And usually when I come down this, and my backyard is all fenced, uh, so she's free there. And when I come down the stairs from the porch, usually, of course, she'll come to me all, you know, happy. And so I was coming down the stairs. She was like maybe, I don't know, 35 feet from me. So she started coming, her happy, usual self. And then I showed her what I was coming to do. I showed her the little bottle. Yes. And she stopped like about probably, I don't know, 15 feet from me and lied down. And her body language was clearly she knew what I was coming down for. I mean, her ears, her the, the way she was not looking at me, etc. And I just kneeled there 15 feet away and waited. And it took maybe, I don't know, two, three minutes. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. I just kind of kneel there because I respected the body language she was giving me. And my God, she came. She wow. came to me, lied down next to me. And I did, you know, I did the procedure. But I was amazed because I was not going after her at all. I mean, I was just kneeling there. It was totally her choice to come and get it. And so for me, these little things, I mean, they're like... Yes little miracles that we encounter and it just shows how powerful it is when when we give them some choice I never would have thought that this could happen that she would actually come to get it ever yes 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 and it does it does make your day and it does yeah and it and it absolutely is something that you want to share because these are those are the moments that we live for those surprises yeah. And there the proof is in the pudding moment. Yes. I call. Yes. So that was my little uh, my little miracle. Now this article. So the the name of this the psychologist he's an assistant professor at University of Arizona and he teaches psychology and cognitive science. And so he titled his study the 85% rule for optimal learning and of, and so the study was made with machines. So they were teaching simple tasks to machine, things like being able to distinguish between even numbers and odd numbers or low versus high numbers, classifying different patterns into one of two categories. So there were simple tasks that they were teaching machines. And everyone, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a trainer, you always wonder, you know, what is the sweet spot when it comes to learning? You know, how difficult, because this, this is really what the, the study is about, is the level of difficulty. So how difficult must it be? And so what they learn in this study is that we need to be challenged a little bit to grasp something just outside the bounds of our existing knowledge. When, it's, when the challenge is too simple, we don't learn anything new. And when it's too difficult and we keep failing, we don't learn either. 
Yes. So th- they found that the the sweet spot uh, was when you can see it either when failure occurs at 15% of the time or put in another way, when the right answer is given 85% of the time. And so this rule, you know, we've all heard of this rule like years and years and years ago. This was the rule to help you decide when you were going to raise your criteria. And, you know, even when you, uh, when you wrote your mantra and you said, when a loop is clean, you should move on. In a way, that's a way of saying, don't, don't stay at the same level because, you know, there's, learning will not be maximized if you always stay there. Yeah. So we've, we've been dancing around this rule a lot. And for me, I thought it was like done with that it was over, and I thought it was interesting to see it in, in published this last November. It made me think of when I, I started, I think I've talked about this, started playing um, during the pandemic Scrabble on my phone with my friends. But you can play against the machine too, and there are levels of difficulty. There's easy, uh, medium, difficult, and then I'm not at the other levels, but they call it master, I think, something like that. And for a while, I played at medium, But then I started getting bored and I went to the the difficult level and I could see that my game was getting better. You know, I was now nearing 400 in scores where before I was more around 300. And, you know, one of my horse, Pico, I can see this in him where if it's too easy, he disengages. You know, Woody is kind of the opposite in a way. As soon as he makes a mistake, he disengages. But Pico is kind of the opposite. It's like when it's too easy, he seems so bored. So in a way, you know what this did to me when, when I read this? Because I've, I've really adhered. Is that a word in English? Yes, adhered. To the idea of airless learning. And so... I'm always trying to set things up in a way where my animals are making no errors at all. And when they do, I'm always questioning myself, is this a bad setup? Oh no, the animal made a mistake. I need to go have the proverbial cup of tea. But in a way, when I was looking at this research, it kind of made me relax, you know, like there can be, you know, an error here and there. And maybe it's even good uh, when it happens. So I thought it's maybe not over this discussion. No. And one of the things that I know Mary and Jesus will be talking about during science camp is that in a way that airless learning is a misnomer. Because it's yes. not it's not that you never make mistakes. Because then, you know, you're setting, we're setting ourselves up for failure because, of course, there are going to be some errors. But we're looking procedurally, not at an end result. So it's not that the animal is never making a mistake because there isn't that stretch into the new, into the unknown, as it were. You know, the, the good puzzle book makers understand this. You have, for example, the Sudoku puzzles. Yeah. And you you buy a, a Sudoku puzzle book and you're new to you're new to these puzzles. So the first few 
pages, the first chapter. These are going to be easy puzzles that introduce you to the basic, this is how the structure of these puzzles works. You know, you, you're going to be adding up columns or whatever it is. It's been a while since I've looked at Sudoku. And there are certain simple logic puzzles that are presented to you. But once you've solved those easy ones, you know, they're easy. That's yeah, the whole there's point. nothing left to learn. If you get it right 100% right. of the time. And, and if, you, if they didn't become harder, you would get bored and go yes. away. Yes. But if they get too hard too fast, yeah, you'll you lose your out. confidence yeah. that yeah. you can solve them. So a really skilled puzzle setter, or another name for that would be trainer, or another name for that would be teacher, Yes. knows how to build the puzzles in a way that you are you have the ability to solve them. You may have to think a little bit, but the you have the ability to solve them. And one of the things that we're doing in the you know the errorless learning is you're breaking these complex tasks down into components, teaching the underlying component skills. And then when you encounter a situation where your learner is beginning to struggle, one of the things that that can tell you is, ah, I'm missing a component. Yes. I need to go, I need to go have a cup of tea and figure out as I'm as I was asking for my learner to put the pieces together into a more complex form, I we hit a roadblock. We started to stumble. Is it just that uh, we were training right at dinner time, and my horse can hear that the barn help has arrived and is passing out hay, and that distraction is taking his focus elsewhere? Okay, uh, I can deal with that. Or is it that I am missing a component, an underlying skill, and I need to go teach that and put that into play yes. uh, so that my animal can be successful, but you have puzzle moments. That's what Kay Lawrence calls the puzzle moments where yes. you, you, and, and they're important because you have to check every now and then to see if what your learner is doing and thinks he's doing is what you think he's doing. Meaning you're putting on, you're playing portal. You mentioned portal. You're playing portal, you're putting objects out on the table, and your partner, your learner, is consistently touching the correct one. Click and treat. You, you take the pieces away, you set them out on the table again, your learner reaches out, touches the one that you intended, click treat, you do that several times, and then you set them out a little differently. And your partner touches an object, but you can't click and treat it because it's not the one you intended. So if you talk about it later, what you may discover is that your rule, the rule that you were trying to teach is, I'd like you to touch the tallest one. But your learner was thinking that you want him to touch the first one he, you put out on the table or the one that you put out on the table closest to you. And until you scramble them up a little bit, you think 
that your partner is operating under the same rule that you are. And he's being 100% successful until you have a puzzle moment test. And then you discover, oh, darn, you know, I'm not where I thought I was. Yes. So that's all, that's all part of it. Right, right. Challenges, those puzzle moments where you, um, and the setup that you do to kind of expand the learning and check, you know, are you at the, uh, what, what kind of error rate are you getting? You sometimes hear that um, or read the words zone of proximal difficulty. Meaning, you know, again, you want it to be somehow a challenge so you can expand. You know, let's say you're learning a new language or new music. You know, there's a, you, you won't be building the same kind of easy sentences all the time. If, you want, if you're going to speak the language, you need to up your game a little bit. All the video games are also set up like this. Absolutely. Where you have all the levels and, you know, once you've mastered a level... You, you don't want to stay there because if you do, you're going to get bored. They're masters at getting you hooked into the process. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And it's fun to feel that you're expanding, that you're yes. mastering things more than you were when you first entered. And what well, it's difficult for us to know how our animals think, but I mean, certainly... Uh, we see that their knowledge is expanding, their skills are expanding, and I suspect they're, I don't know, I, I won't do that. I won't go there and say that they, there's some satisfaction for them learning these things. But certainly, they're getting their reinforcement and they're, you know, they want more of that. So, so for me, when, when I first heard this rule, because, and they, they talk about this in the, I think in the study, because they say that in the animal training world, this rule has already been, you know, described. But I think it was the first time it was done with machines. I'm not sure, but uh, it seems like it. But this this rule for me was kind of, you know, 85%. When you're training, when you're in, in the middle of a training session, I'm not doing a lot of statistics. <laughs> right. I find that it's it was helpful but not as much as what I read in this book from Mary Hunter and Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. So I want to, I want to, so this is in the chapter called uh, Changing the Criteria for Reinforcement. And what they suggest is to follow this general rule. And I'm going to read it. And it's so simple. After the, the learner does the behavior confidently, and correctly, three times in a row, you can move to the next step. That is pretty easy. You know, I don't have to keep tracks of 85%. Three times in a row, you can move to the next step. And then she, they describe what each of those words mean. Three times in a row means if the learner does the behavior twice, then does another behavior and then goes back to the behavior, this doesn't count as three times. Right. The correct behavior, if the learner's performing variations of the behavior that don't exactly meet your criteria for reinforcement, don't count them as correct. And then with confidence, does the learner hesitate or seem uncertain? 
the learner should confidently repeat the behavior immediately after the reinforcer is delivered. So three, three times in a row, confidently and correctly, and then you can move to the next criteria. I like this. I find this to be very actionable when I train. It has really helped me, this, this rule. Have you used this? How do you do it? What, how, do you, how do you change your criteria? What do you base your decisions on? I shift when the next criterion is already occurring on a consistent basis. Oh, yeah, I've heard you say that. Right. If you say, okay, you've done this correctly three times in a row. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to change the criterion. Mm -hmm. Change it to what? So you could be dropping your right. learner into a horrific extinction process mm -hmm. if there isn't a something to move into. Meaning you've now, oh, let's take a simple, uh, you've, you're working on leg lifts. And you've gotten, uh, you've asked for the leg lift, it comes up promptly, click treat. You ask for it again, it comes up promptly to the height that, that sits within your criteria. So that's number two. You ask for it again, that's number three. So now you need to change. Yeah. Okay. So, so this tells you when to change. It when to change. It tell you what to change to. Right. So what I find for me is that what I recognize is that you don't get carbon copies of behavior. This mm -hmm. is something that Susan Friedman talks about in her presentations as well. And, you know, it's always nice when you hear somebody else sort of confirming things that, that, that you've been saying or that you've been noticing. You know, we don't produce carbon copies. You know, when we're looking for performance, we want to get as close to a carbon copy as is biologically possible. So if you're looking, for example, for an Olympic level performance, and the, exa the, the example I generally use when I'm doing presentations is I pull up a couple of photos of Michelle Kwan, the, the figure skater, and that beautiful move she had where she was gliding across the ice. And I've pulled up several images from the internet of her in the, the same point in the in that glide and in each one there'll be little variations now here's an olympic level athlete who has spent who knows how many hundreds and hundreds of hours practicing to reduce variability practicing to be able to produce that perfect perfect performance each and every time she is presenting herself on the ice in front of a judge. And yet there's that variability. So behavior varies. Mm -hmm. we, we don't get carbon copies, but we can certainly get variations that sit within the range of the criterion that we've set. So on that leg lift, they may not bring the knee up to exactly the same spot each and every time, but we have a range. You know, we would like the knee to come up higher than the midpoint of a uh, foreleg. And we, you know, we'd like it to be higher than, we'll say, eight inches off the ground, but they don't have to jack it up to their eyebrows, so to speak. So, you know, there's a, there's a range, there's a criterion that needs to be met. And so your animals met that each and every time. But now 
what do you do? Suppose you want, I don't know, suppose you want, you're looking for... Two legs before you click. Two Left, legs right. before you click. Yeah. Or maybe you want, maybe what you want is for the leg to begin to extend out right. into the Spanish walk position. Yes. Well, if your horse has always come up with his with his hoof kind of pulling back towards his stomach, and you're now going, okay, you've done it three times in a row, and now I'm only going to click when I see your foot moving forward. Right. But the foot hasn't moved forward. Yes. You're now waiting for something that your animal is going to struggle to produce. And so your success rate is going to, it's not going to be anywhere near 85%. Right. It's going to be down maybe around 5%, 10%. With If that, with your learner going, I don't know what you want. This is not fun anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to go over and sniff that manure pile over there. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, I think they combine well yeah. in the sense that you're not going to really start to see the next criterion until you get some consistency happening in what you're working on. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, for example, if I'm in the grownups are talking, please don't interrupt easy one. I want my horse to stand next to me with his head between his shoulders. And and I would like to build his head so his head is about level with the point of his of his shoulder, his muzzle that is. It's about level with the point of his his shoulder, his head is evenly between his shoulders, that his neck looks pretty to me so he's not all compressed back. He's not uh, stargazing with a U neck, you know all the, but his neck is coming up from the base of his of of his neck, and we've got a lovely expression of his neck. And I'd like some duration, and and I'm getting all of that. And oh, by the way, I would like the ears to pop forward. Well, until you have uh, some consistency, some stability in those other criteria. Mm -hmm. you're not going to really notice and be ready to move into the ears. So that, you know, looking for, has he, is he able to do it? Is he able to do it again? Is he able to do it again? Gives you that predictability that you can begin to scan for, and what else is he doing that I can move into? But you know why, for me, I guess it's it was helpful when I read this and started using it is because I tend to want my animals to go through no frustration. And so I, I have a bias, a tendency to stay too long yes. because I want them to enjoy it. It's going well. I want no errors. So for me, the three times in a row done confidently and correctly, and those are important words, Yes, it, it made me move on. You know, so maybe in your example, let's say they did the leg lift and now I wanted the extension. Well, maybe after we've done, because the, the danger when you stay too long is that after that, you really build that glass ceiling and it's yes. difficult to get yes. more because the animal is expecting his reinforcement. Yes. Um, and so, and in a way, 
you know, I find that this maybe 15% of errors is good because it, you know, it keeps the animal engaged while he can tolerate not getting reinforced every time he does something. You know, it's like, okay, it's okay. You know, sometimes you try stuff and it's not what I'm looking for and you don't get reinforced and it's not the end of the world. That's if you're at the 15%, right? If you're lower than that, right. it's another something else. But let's say, it, just to go back to the example, I get three leg lifts at the height that I like, but now I want the extension. So maybe what I could do is after the three leg lifts, in order to build the scale of expand, expanding the leg, then I stop doing this, the leg lifts, and I go do some targeting where I'm going to use the targeting to get the extension of the leg. You know, maybe I start very low at the ground to have the horse touch the target at a distance so he extends his leg. For example, you know, I right, I right. this out very well, but and then I can start to uh, to do it higher and higher and higher and so and then as i'm going higher and higher if i am getting my extension let's say at one inch three times in a row confidently and correctly then i can do four inches etc like that you know so i don't know it's just for me it's it's been a good um it's good it's been a good guide you know but i understand what you mean obviously if the behavior is not happening you know you're asking for criteria which in a way, is probably kind of lumping. Then it's uh, the, the, the three the three times in a row rule will everything will collapse, right? Be- because right. you're asking for too much. You're lumping, and you don't have the prerequisite skills right. that you need. But it certainly gives you a structure, and it's actually it harder than it can sound to get something three times in a row to the level that you that you want. Yeah, correctly, confidently, because, yeah. you know, that the latent, the hesitation, you know, if you were talking here three times in a row with confidence. Yes. So already that's, you know, that's a, a level of difficulty where or, or it shows you that the animal really understands what, what, you know, how he's going to get his reinforcer. Or if, if it's too hard, you're looking at a complex behavior instead of the component parts because if if i'm if i'm asking for a component part that's a simpler behavior and in theory it should be easier to get that simpler behavior to become more consistent faster than if it's the whole complex behavior yes absolutely yeah and sometimes, you know, what's difficult is just to find a way to get the behavior, to get it going. Yes. You know, and, and we're, we're finding examples, I, I think, more and more, you know, really um, interesting examples all around us in the community. You know, I find some people are quite creative. They, they have good ideas to get the behavior because sometimes that's the thing. <laughs> You're just not getting it started. Right. You know, your animal is just staring at you and it's not working out. So how do you get the behavior yeah. started? And there's always more than one way to teach everything. And some, sometimes the fun is to come up with a different way of teaching something that you already know how to teach. You yeah. know, that's one of the challenges. You know, I've always done head lowering this way. Well, yeah. good. Let me try it a different way then. 
Sometimes we don't even remember how we taught something. <laughs> yeah. Does that happen to you? Sometimes. No, there are things that Canel knows, and I have no idea. I don't remember how I showed her, but she knows really well. Yeah. So when you start teaching many, many animals, what you're saying, you know, learning to teach things a different way, because not all animals will learn the same way. Right. And for the fun of it, too. But yeah, that happens to me sometimes. I forget how I, I got the behavior. <laughs> and sometimes you just have a more, sometimes some animals are, I was going to say more clever or they get, for some reason, they get it uh, quicker for some behaviors than others. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a range of, I think it's fair to say there's a range of ability to learn new things in humans. And so, of course, there's a range of ability to learn new things in, in animals. Some, some of our animals are much faster at making connections and associations than others. Uh, so it's, you know, that, that's a fair statement to make. Well, you must, you must be experimenting that with the goats versus the horses. You know, you're reteaching a lot of things that you taught your horses 20 years ago. And well, maybe you're doing it differently, maybe sometimes the same way. Well, I get to I get to use a lot of dog training techniques know, with the goats because they're dog size. So they're things yeah. that work really well with dogs. Yeah, that I are, saw a video that you posted, I don't know where anymore, but you were using targeting and platforms and I thought she's having a ball with this. I am. I am. <laughs> I am. They're they they're they're highly entertaining. And they're definitely... They were really good, too. They were doing great. Yeah. Um, they're learning. Just, oh, I know. I think it was when you did your um, your broadcast with Cam. Oh, yes. I showed yeah, a little bit of the, of the goats. Yeah, yes. Fun. Yes. So, yeah, I get to... That's still available, by the way. Yes, the live from the ranch. Yeah, that was, exactly. That it's was fun. There. It was... The challenge was how ambidextrous are you? Because, right. of course, uh, with horses, we are definitely encouraged to be very ambidextrous, in part because we ride. So we need to be able to use both our both the left side and the right side of our bodies well because we ride. Well, I knew that about you, but my thrill was looking at you using the, the target to have them spin and using the platforms. That was my thrill because, ah. you know, I haven't seen you done that with the horses, of course. And so it was fun to see you do all that. Right. You were very successful with the right. goats. Well, because the goats are small. So you can mm -hmm. do, yeah. you know, you can move a target over their backs more easily exactly. than, than I can move yeah. a target over. I, I, would have, I would have to be on some of those stilts that your gymnast in the Cavalia well, show used. you have to be higher and have a very long target. <laughs> yes, which gets awkward. I mean, you and I have experimenting with, experimented with things pretty creative with yes, the horses. Yes, absolutely. I remember we had this pulley where the horses were following a ball, I guess it was in the yep, air. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a way. Oh, yeah. It's certainly simpler with the goats and the dogs. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, you, don't, but... you don't need a full-time handyman to construct all <laughs> kinds of uh, props and, and systems. Well, I thought we were wonderfully creative with some of that. That was that was fun. But anyway, your your discussion of the of when to raise the criterion and the three times in a row and 
actually, I think, can be tied in to what I wanted to talk about, which was hugs. Okay. Which is a very relevant topic on two levels. Cue the music. This is a good place to take a break. Before a change, I'm not going to make you wait a whole week to listen to the rest of this podcast. Instead, I'll just jump in here to say that if you do want to split your listening, this is a good place to stop. We're about to have a slight shift in subject, but I won't make you wait because I'm going to be prepping this coming week for science camp, so I won't have time to get another episode out until after Labor Day weekend. So we'll jump back in now and you can hear the rest of our conversation. But anyway, your your discussion of the of when to raise the criterion in the three times in a row and actually I think can be tied in to what I wanted to talk about, which was hugs. Okay. Which is a very relevant topic on two levels. So Well now that the only people we can hugs are our animals. <laughs> well, yes. And see that's the point. That's the point. So I keep hearing on the news, or you know, you hear various interviews of people who have, uh, you know, where they're asking, well, how's life been now that you're locked down? And people are, oh, you know, it's so hard because I, you know, when I meet people and when I see my friends, I just want to hug them. And but we need to stay distanced, and it's such, so much stress. And then you hear the psychologists when they interview how, you know how deeply traumatized we're all going to be because we haven't been able to hug. It, it made me wonder that we haven't heard more about the research that's out there that says how much just stroking the family dog or stroking the family cat lowers your blood pressure and your heart rate and is very soothing and how good it is for your physical health, your mental health, to have animals in your life. And, and they've done these studies. Yeah, yeah. The, the research is out there. And, and it's been really interesting how quiet everybody has in the media has been about the benefits of having animals in your life. If ever there was a time to talk about it, are you feeling hug-deprived? Go hug your, your dog. <laughs> Go hug your horse. Go hug your, you know, go hug your animals. Maybe not the goats. They're not that keen on being hugged. But certainly the, your, you know. The dog, cats, the, and the dog, the cat. horses. And the, most horses that were clicker trained at some Yeah, point certainly our love. horses love being hugged. So, and yeah. and it, Especially now, there's still a lot of bugs. <laughs> yeah. And it does, I think it does satisfy the, to a very great extent that, that need we have for that deep physical contact. There's nothing like a good bear hug with a horse because, you know, their necks are just so substantial. And you had some, you know, you know, Zacho, the show. I mean, if ever there was a champion hugger, <laughs> that was Zacho. And he, and he just, he was, had that wonderful Iberic neck and you put your arms around that and he just, and, and he would hug you back which was the best part. He would hug you back. And of course, right now, there are a lot of people who are adopting 
animals and getting puppies and so on. You know, there's even the expression of the pandemic puppy. And we did the interview with Suzanne Koenig where she's yeah. got her puppy classes that are designed to help these puppies become socialized to a wider world when, you know, if you, you've, you've brought this puppy into your house, but you can't go anywhere. So this puppy is not seeing some of the things that he needs needs to see as he's growing up. So we had that interview. So there's there's a lot that needs to be said. And I thought, you know, we've got equosity. We should just say it loud, you know, say it out loud that go hug a horse. Well, for me, it's kisses. Hugs and kisses. Hugs and kisses. Because I love to kiss my horse. You know the little space between their ear and their eye? Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes. All yes. three of them. They get kissed there all the time, and they're liking it because, you know, they get reinforced for it. And yes. by now, they're all liking it a lot. Yes. I love it. I love the smell. Yes. Uh, I love the how soft it is there. And it's just at the right height. Yes. You know, they cut, so they kind of lower their head a little bit to get it. Um, yeah. Woody is smaller, so he's kind of, it started with Woody. But, yeah, yeah. hugs and kisses. We'll stay with hugs. Right, because not all hugs are equal. Okay. So, the, you know, so this past weekend, I did a virtual clinic. I was in England okay. and Germany and, uh, and Scotland. It's great fun. It's a wonderful thing, this, this modern world. It's almost like Star Trek. You know, beam me up, Scotty, and off I, off I go. So uh, I'm really loving these virtual clinics because... I can work with everyone's horses in their home environment, which you could never do in an actual clinic. That plus you're not as sleep deprived as you oh, used to be. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> that's 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 why my head is like mush, because it, I'm discovering it's much harder to change time zones when you're not changing geography. Mm. So when I do a UK clinic, I'm in their time zone, not mine. So that's a little bit of a challenge anyway, but it's working. It worked. So this past weekend, we'd had a virtual clinic and one of the horses, we just got this just such neat video. He's um, a teenage horse who's had... So how old would that be? I'm not sure that I know. So 15 plus or minus. He had clearly had a tough life before his current lovely, lovely owner took him on. So he's got a lot of stiffness in his body, a lot of arthritis. He's, his feet were a mess, you know, nutritionally he was a mess. She's doing a, just a marvelous job with his rehab. And emotionally, he's in such a better place than he used to be. So it's really a pleasure to, to see him. But he was really stiff. And so what I suggested that she that she try would be to teach him to hug, but it's the Feldenkrais hug. You see me teach that to some of the horses that I worked with at the retirement farm. So the, the Feldenkrais hug is a very specific way of introducing these very soft gives and the end result is a horse that loves to hug. And they often, when you teach it in this manner, you can get just some extraordinary, 
extraordinary transformations emotionally with these mm-hmm. horses. It's been just the absolute transformation of relationships when people have added in the Feldenkrais hug. So in the second round of video that she showed, she was showing how she had taught another version of the hug, but it wasn't quite what I was looking for. And in the third video It clip, wasn't Feldenkrais enough for you. Right. <laughs> well, and it bypassed his muzzle. So it didn't get quite the connection. And in the third video clip, she was just starting to introduce him to the, to the first step of this whole process. And it was so cool because as she asked and then asked again and then asked again, you know, getting it three times in a row, what you saw was this beautiful soft give up in the pole in the TMJ. And what was really neat, because the camera was right at, was just at a perfect angle. And she had a lead rope just resting over his neck so we could use the lead um, over his, his shoulder as a reference point to help us see it. Mm-hmm. So as he gave, you could also see this tiny little shift in his shoulder. Uh, so you could see the change as his shoulder cat, just this tiny little response. And so what you know is that that this movement that you're generating is now beginning to ripple through this whole horse. And so every joint in his body will begin to release. In the teamwork, one of the things that Linda Tellington-Jones used to say is, when you can soften and release one joint in the body, it affects every joint in the body. And that comes from some of the oriental healing arts. And so anyway, with the Feldenkrais hug, and one of these days, and I've been saying this for a while, one of these days I have to put together a really good video on this because... That would be good. It would be good. And maybe I'll get it done at some point in the not too distant future, but who knows? In any event, you begin with body part targeting. So let's imagine that you're standing on the left side of the horse. And I'm going to take my left hand. And and I know the right-handed people are going to want to use their right hand, but you're going to need your right hand for other things. So you're going to take your left hand from the left side of the horse. You're going to take your left hand, and you're just going to put it over your horse's right nostril briefly. You're not lingering. You're not staying there. It's about the length of time it would take you to flick a piece of dirt off his shoulder. Or uh, if you saw a fly on somebody's shoulder and you just sort of brushed your hand towards the shoulder. It's a fleeting thing. So you put your hand there, and as you do, you click, you give your horse a goodie. Then you put your hand over the nostril again, you click, you give him a goodie. You put your hand over the nostril again, click, you give him a goodie. And then you can begin, so you're, you're not shaping the horse to bring his nose to you at this point. You are simply making that contact. And, and telling him that your hand on him 
is significant information yep. to get reinforcement. Yep. Then you can begin. So, you know, and, and you could follow your, thir- your three times in a row. You know, mm-hmm. can I place my... So I'm not having to chase all over to find his nose, but right. you know he's, he's keeping his nose still enough that I can reach around and promptly put my hand there. And then you can you can build a little duration. Uh, you can actually you can go one of two ways. So you can say, now that my hand is over your nose, what I'd like you to do is find my hand. So instead mm-hmm. of actually touching the nostril, yeah. you would be just fractionally like the just off the tips of the hair and what he what you want him to do is to look for that feel click and treat so then you put your he's going to the he's going and this is how you teach one of the ways that you teach body part targeting so it wouldn't matter if what the body part was you do it with the ear the shoulder the hip you know you're just the jaw the jaw whatever so but this is the nostril so now you have a horse who is starting to find your hand. Who's, he's bringing his nostril to your, your, your waiting hand. Click yeah. treat. Now you don't need him to bring his, his head any great distance, but you start to move your hand around to his side, and he's meeting you and bringing his mm-hmm. nose to your hand. And then you can start to build duration. And so now what you're looking for is the feeling of his breath exhaling into your hand. Mm-hmm. So your hand is over his nose, and you're going to wait until you feel him exhale. Now, even if you're working with a tense horse, he's going to breathe. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, we're not working with sperm whales, where this is going to take forever, and now your rates of reinforcement are down into, you know, no man's land, he's going to take a breath. Mm-hmm. And so in that instance, when he you feel him taking a breath, you're going to click and treat. So right away, you're starting to work towards relaxation because you're clicking him for breathing, which is wonderful. So you click when he exhales or? You click as he exhales. Mm-hmm. Okay. And from there, you can build out even more duration. So now that you can put your hand over his nostril and you've got, and he's comfortable with you leaving it there. So if you, if you start to leave it there for a few seconds on, he's not pulling his head away going, oh, you know, you're touching me and I don't really like it. He's fine with you touching his nostril. He's fine with you lingering there. Now you're going to bring your right hand up and you're going to cup your right hand around his chin. And it just so happens that a horse's chin just fits beautifully into the palm of our hand. So it's a lovely feel. So now you have the nose and then chin. And you can you can name them. Nose, chin. So yep. as you say nose, your hand goes to his nostril. As you say chin, your right hand comes up and cups into his chin, click and treat. As a parenthesis, I find that uh, it's especially important for the chin because if you don't let them know that you're coming up there, they don't see very, right. you know, they don't necessarily know where your hand is because it's kind of in a blind spot right. under their face. So 
I find I like to let my horse know that I'm coming up to the gym. Yep. And they also might think that you're coming up, your your hand is moving towards them to feed them. Yeah, they could. Yeah. yeah. So we yeah. don't want... So it's good to put it on right, cue. Right. So we now have a nose and a chin. So the muzzle is cupped in your hands. And at this point, you need a third hand, but you don't have it. So you use your forehead to just rest right where, right in the crook of their neck, sort of where the, you know, the round part of their jowl comes up to meet the neck, right where the halter would sort of goes up where the buckle would be. And when they give, where you would see these little wrinkles coming. So you just let your, your forehead rest there and you'll feel this lovely, soft ah, release and that just melts into your hand, into your forehead, and you click and, and treat that. So they've just given at the pole, and it will, it will extend all the way through their spine as they begin to let go. It is just a heavenly thing. And as you build it, what you get then is a byproduct, which is that wonderful hug that you saw that I was, was teaching some of the the horses where you open your arms and they just bring their head in and you can give them a lovely hug and then you can go up and reach your arms around their neck and give them that lovely hug that just means that those of us who have horses are not missing that tactile because we can't go up to uh, our friends and, and give them a hug the way that those who like hugs have been doing, one has to specify, did were able to do before the lockdown. So it's, it's a very reinforcing for us, and it does wonderful, wonderful things for the horses. And I, it is described in, so in my blog, the clickercenterblog.com, it's okay. in the Joyful Horses. So it's in... Remember, oh, we... It's in part, it's in part two of the joyful horses and i think it starts around unit 10 so there is a description of it in in there okay so where i describe actually working with uh, an ear shy horse so that's that's what i wanted to share because it seemed really appropriate in this age of corona where people may be missing that tactile where they're hug deprived they're hug deprived they're hug deprived. And yes, we can go out and fling our arms around our horses, but to add in the Feldenkrais hug and yeah. see where it takes you. Now, if you're tight in your body, if you're tight in your shoulders, if you're holding your breath, you may not feel or be able to allow some of these amazing changes. So there's a certain amount of awareness work that we have to do on ourselves for this to be really effective. But when you start out just looking for the breath, every time your horse releases to you, you're releasing to him. So even if you start out tight, having your hand cupped over his nostril and feeling for his breath, he will start to soften you. Mm -hmm. that's the great gift of horses mm -hmm. and you will feel a change in you you know it will that's that's where you know that great heart circle of the horses 
will begin to, to alter how you're feeling. So yeah. it's a wonderful thing to play with. It, so if, if, if all people do is go out and work on the body part targeting of the nostril and, and, and have that lovely feel of the horse breathing into their hand, it will be a lovely thing. Well, you know, it's it's a great way to teach the concept of duration, too, because it's not something very tiring for the horse. <laughs> no, and it is quite, and, it's a criterion that you will get. So it fits both, it fits what both of us are looking for. So you're looking for three times in a row. And then I want to say, well, what do I move to? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to move to something that I know I can get, so I don't go into yeah. extinction. I know I can get my horse to breathe, because he's... Right he's going to breathe. So it's a criterion that I can move to Hmm. without creating difficulties for my learner. Yeah, absolutely. So So go hug your horses. Yes, yes. So that, that that will be our challenge for this week is to go experiment with the three times in a row and see what that does for your training. And then see how that applies if you teach a nose targeting and who knows the byproduct may be a wonderful hug and the only the only thing i would add is to remember that for every behavior you teach there is an opposite behavior you must teach to keep things in balance so very important very important that's right so if you teach a hug and most of our horses love to hug. You need an off switch. Yeah, and the grown-ups up are talking. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, your yeah, off yeah. switch. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't want your horse flinging your head at you all the time. That's right. He wants to engage. That's right. So, so when I open that, my... That rule is, you know, if there were one rule for horse people, especially, I find, because they're so big, that would keep people out of a lot of trouble, it would be that one. Yes, yeah. That's such an important rule. Yep, it is. So, you know, you you want to be able to open your arms and invite a hug, but you also want to be able to close your arms and create the off switch of grown-ups so your horse knows what to do. So he's not being punished for, no, you can't, you can't hug me now. And he's going, oh, yeah. but I wanted to. It's getting in there first with, and now I'd like you to go into that lovely go into stillness position, which you also enjoy doing because it has such a deep history of reinforcement behind it. Yeah, and and the, the, the fact that you're teaching opposites, not just in this case, but in all different examples, it brings even more clarity uh, yes. to each of the behaviors. Yes, because I was about to say, and this is how you get to airless training, because mm-hmm. you're not dropping your animal into voids of... I don't know what to do. Let me just try. Let me go through the Rolodex of things you've taught me. You know, you're you're not reinforcing me right now for hugging, but what am I supposed to do? Oh, yeah. I could go into grown-ups and you're cueing that. This is great. And so now you have a, a confident, happy learner and you don't have a black eye because you weren't expecting the horse to swing his head into your space asking for a hug. So it's all good. All right. So we'll go hug and kiss our horses and we'll talk next week. Yes. Very good. Many thanks. Bye. We've put in the show notes the reference for the paper 
Dominique shared in the first part of the podcast, as well as a link to the section of the Joyful Horses posts in my blog, where I describe how to teach hugs. It includes pictures and videos. So for that one, just go to theclickercenterblog.com and up in the top, you'll see tabs for various contents, including one for the Joyful Horses. And if you pull that down, you should find the, the reference that you need. So it's in part two, and I believe it's section 10. And we'll have that link in the show notes. And if you're intrigued by the stay-at-home clinics, check out the events section in my website. So my website is theclickercenter.com. And I have to say, (laughs) it's just, I don't know what, just sort of absurd, depressing, exciting, all of those things, uh, what has happened to the fall clinic schedule. If you'd asked me last spring, I would have said for sure we would be holding the fall clinics as always. Absolutely, we would have been past this virus. But clearly, that's not how it's worked out. So I'm switching all the fall events to virtual clinics. And so hopefully there'll be one that fits both your time zone and your schedule. It's good to have something to look forward to. So do check out that schedule. The clinics are a lot of fun. They're a good learning experience. And hopefully I'll see you at one of these events. So until then, stay safe and have fun with your horses.